Anyway, it, it's good to be here. Um, in, our, in our family devotions, we usually, they're super simple. There's nothing fancy or complicated about it at all. Uh, I think sometimes when you hear family devotions, you think, oh man, they, they must be really super spiritual. Or, wow, they must be really impressive. It's, I literally open the Bible. I usually just read from subheading to subheading. And then if something sticks out, we talk about it and we pray and go to sleep. Like it's not fancy. Um, but we've been reading through the book of Matthew, or we just finished Matthew, I think, this past week. And uh, usually if you ask me, what, Chad, what's your favorite book of the Bible? It's usually whichever one I'm reading, uh, because there's so much goodness in the whole thing, cover to cover. And, um, you know, whatever I'm in, I'm always like, man, that's awesome. The text that has come back to my mind over and over and over again, reading through Matthew, is Matthew 16, 13 to 19. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, it's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. I had hoped to preach through, verses, uh, through verse 28, uh, but during the preparation I realized that was way too ambitious. That was, there was just no way we we're going to get to all that. So, um, Matthew's gospel is um, it, it, it's aimed at a Jewish audience. He's assuming that it's primarily a Jewish audience reading this. And where I get that is... Um, he, he assumes somewhat of a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so frequently, like in, like in every chapter, it seems, sometimes more than once, Matthew will say, this happened to fulfill what was written. He's constantly referring back to the Old Testament. And, um, um, and so when Matthew starts his gospel, um, he... Um, he points out tons of miracles of Jesus, okay? So he talks a lot about fulfilled prophecy and a lot about miracles. Um, just in the first, uh, to this point, so from Matthew 16 back to chapter 1, here's what we know. Um, we know that Jesus has healed diseases and pains, that's chapter 1. He has stopped seizures, he's dispelled demons, he has ended paralysis. He's taught crowds with astonishing authority. He's cleansed lepers, he's calmed storms, he's raised the dead, he's given sight to the blind, speech to the mute, he's restored withered hands, he's fed 5,000 plus, he's walked on water, and then he's fed 4,000 plus. And so Jesus one day comes to his disciples and he says, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? What, what, what are they saying about me? Um, since these miracles uh, that Jesus had been performing and this teaching uh, had been witnessed, you know, by the masses. I mean, the, you know, Jesus knew the word would have been spreading about him. Uh, you don't see people uh, healing the blind and giving, uh, you know, hearing to the deaf and telling lame people to get up without some people starting to talk about that, right? Um, and so Jesus goes, hey, what, what, what's the word on the street? You know, what, what are you guys hearing about me? And here's the word on the street, according to them. Um, some said that he was John the Baptist. And so you can see there in verses uh, 13 and 14. Uh, verse 13, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. John the Baptist, the, the, the record or the Matthew's telling of John the Baptist's execution uh, happened about three chapters earlier, two chapters earlier. Um, but Herod 
was under the impression, apparently, this is hilarious. So verse 14, or chapter 14, okay. Um, yeah, verse 1. This is just fascinating. This, listen to Herod's assumption. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so I don't know where Herod came into that sort of thinking, but Herod's thought was that guy that I just killed, he's been resurrected from the dead, and he's just walking around teaching people. There were some people that thought that. Um, some said Elijah. So the, the very last words of the Old Testament are this. Um, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Um, some people thought that Jesus was Elijah. Um, he was this one that was going to come and turn the hearts of fathers uh, to their children and children to their fathers. Um, others said he was Jeremiah. Okay. There was this Jewish tradition uh, that was recorded in 2 Maccabees, which we, as Christians, Protestant Christians, we reject 2 Maccabees for a very good reason, but we can get into that another time. Um, but um, uh, there was this Jewish tradition that had been recorded in 2 Maccabees um, where the, the, the Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of the incense from the temple uh, before the Babylonian destruction. So he'd kind of gone in, gotten that stuff out, before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And there were people who thought that Jesus was Jeremiah returning to usher in the restoration of the temple. Um, and then others said, you know, he was just some other prophet. You know, he was just one of the other guys. Um, that is a fascinating thing to me, that, that you can watch, that you can watch that list of miracles. Now, uh, you know, if you know your Old Testament very well, you know it's, it's, it's littered with miracles. There's miracles all over the place, tons of them. Uh, but there's not just one guy that's walking around doing all of the stuff that we just read about Christ. Like, there, there was no one in the Old Testament that did stuff like this. Not, not this quantity, not this magnitude. It was more like in certain moments... God would work miracles through people for specific reasons, but it wasn't like people were just walking. There was nobody in the Old Testament just walking around healing this guy, healing that guy, boom, 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 boom. It, wasn't, it didn't work like that. And so it's astonishing to me that when people see Jesus, they go, oh, you know what? Who, who do people say that I am? Oh, he's a lot like so-and-so. He's just like that other guy. They totally miss the uniqueness of Christ. He is not just like any other guy. There is no one who's like him. And, and they, they missed it. Um, and at times, I, I, I notice this dullness in my own life where I'm kind of like, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm missing it too at times. Um, but there, there's a mechanism for that. There, there, there's help for that. So if you feel somewhat dull toward the greatness of Christ, uh, there is a mechanism for that. There, there, there's help for that. And, and it's the church, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, but that's, that's a scary place to be. I don't want to be in a spot where I think, oh, yeah, Jesus, oh, yeah, he's, he's that guy I'm super familiar with. He's no big deal. He is a big deal. Um, so who is he? Well, um, 
Jesus turns the question on the disciples. So you, you, feel, you figure out that this who do people say that I am was really just kind of the conversational appetizer. It was not, Jesus, I don't think, really cared to hear their take on that. It just sort of got the, it prompted the conversation. And so um, the, the question I think he really wanted to ask was, and, and, and who do you say that I am? He wanted his disciples to be faced with that question and answer that question. And, uh, and Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So let's, let's take a note a moment and just note how Peter did not respond. All right. So this was not written to a 21st century church in the West. Okay. Uh, and and I, I recognize that, but in the 21st century West, there is a temptation to sort of, um, um, make it seem like, well, maybe the truth can't really be known. Do we really know what's right? Do we really know who Jesus is? Do we really know that he's God? What can we really say? Doesn't humility require us to kind of like say, well, you know, who am I to say what your truth is and all that? So listen to what Peter does not say here. Um, He does not say, you know, Jesus, for me, you're God, but I can't really say who you might be for others. Uh, He doesn't say, you know, listen, there's a whole lot of people out there that are a whole lot smarter than me. And so I need to be real careful here when I say that you're God or whoever else, because, I, you know, how can I really, who am I to really know that? Peter doesn't go that route. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in Greek, he actually uses this definite article, the, four times. So if we were to translate it in a way that was kind of janky and not super readable, Uh, But more literally, it would be, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. He's making extremely definite statements here. And what is he saying? What's the essence of this confession? We call him the Christ. Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Um, Christ is the Greek word uh, for anointed one. Um, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. And so in calling Jesus the Christ... Peter is saying this. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Davidic king we've been waiting for. God made promises to David that someone would sit on his throne forever. You are that king, and you are the one who would fully and finally deliver us and sit on the throne forever. Like You are that guy. You're the Davidic king, and you're the one who's going to deliver us and sit on the throne forever. He also calls him the son of the living God. Peter knew that Jesus was not a son of of God. Um, Peter was saying, Jesus, you're the son of God in a a way that no one else is. You are are uniquely the son of God. Um, And let's notice how Jesus does not respond to Peter. Um, He does not say, hey, Peter, you know, I wish you could hear how narrow and judgmental you sound right now, speaking as though your truth is the truth. You know, a whole lot of people affirm truths that are different from your truth, and it would really make me happy if you would acknowledge that right now. You know, Jesus does not say that, right? In fact, uh, if you read the next verse there, uh, verse 15, no, sorry, 16, 17, we'll get there eventually if I just keep saying the numbers, right? Okay, 17. And Jesus answered him, uh, blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
See, this truth did not belong to Peter. Uh, It wasn't Peter's truth. Uh, This truth, according to Jesus, had been revealed to Peter by God. It was God's truth. And if we're going to be humble, if we want to be humble, then we submit to the truth as God has revealed it. Otherwise, we're positioning ourselves above God and saying, no, 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 no. I know you said that's the truth, but I'm rejecting that. And talk about pride. That, that's where pride lies. Humility says, hey, God, I'm going to acknowledge you as who you say you are. Um, and then Peter, or, or sorry, and Jesus makes this comment um, that Peter is blessed. See, there, there is a right way to view Jesus. There's a right way to understand Jesus. He's the deliverer. That's part of that idea of Christ. He's the deliverer. He is the king and he is God. And that, that's how we view Jesus. Um, you know, if you think back, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, early church history at all, you know, you've got all these creeds. Uh, you have the Apostles' Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. You have all these creeds. And so many of them are aimed at, at their core at essentially saying Jesus is the deliverer. He's the king. He is God. Um, so this has been contested for all throughout church history. And, and as Christians, we have to get that right. We have to. Uh, to get this confession wrong is to place ourselves outside of the faith. There's a whole lot of things in Christianity that you can get wrong. Tons and tons and tons. And, that's, and what a grace from God that we can get tons of things wrong. Uh, it, it, within Christianity, there are what we can call primary doctrines or primary truths. Uh, there are secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines, and the list goes on. Probably speaking way too generally, uh, primary doctrines are those that if you reject them, you're outside of Christianity. So primary doctrines are those doctrines where religious lines are drawn, lines between religions. If you believe this, uh, you are outside of the faith. You're outside, you cannot call yourself a Christian. Um, uh, the, the Jesus is the king, the deliverer, and God are all on that list of primaries. You cannot reject any of that and call yourself a Christian. It's just, it's not, it's not the way that works. Secondary uh, doctrines are generally where, um, you know, denominational lines may be drawn. There, 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 there are things that often, now I say denominational, that's why I say I'm saying this loosely. Some denominations are formed for completely frivolous, ridiculous reasons. Others are formed for pretty good ones. But generally speaking, denominational lines are these kind of secondary. And then tertiary, this third level, you know, is, is, is going to be, um, you know, stuff that are really matters of, often matters of conscience, um, things like that. And so um, Peter here and Jesus speaking to Peter, are talking about primary things. These are things that must be embraced. Jesus is the king. Um, He is the deliverer, and he is God. Um, So before we move past this, um, I think it's important for us to ask, you know, who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Um, You know, Jesus is who he is. Jesus was not looking for validation from these guys. Oh, thank goodness you recognize who I am. Oh, man, I feel, I feel so much better about myself. Like, he didn't need the input from these goobers that he had called to follow him. Like, he didn't, he wasn't looking for affirmation from these guys, right? Um, 
He, uh, so what, what they believe about Jesus didn't say anything about who Jesus is. Jesus defines himself, but it said everything about who they are. Right? I mean, that's, so the, the reason for the question to these guys is, um, it's not, hey, tell me who I am. It's, it, it's revealing something about who these guys are. What, um, you know, um, who do they say that Jesus is? How are they going to live? Um, and so, uh, you know, I think I'm remiss if I don't say at this point, um, you know, if, if, if your answer to the question, who is Jesus, is not, he is the king, he is the deliverer, and he is God, I would ask you to believe that, to turn away from whatever it is you believe about him, whatever hearsay you're embracing, and embrace the truth that he says about himself. Um, now, okay, Matthew 16, 18 um, he keeps going. So he, he, tells, he tells Peter that he's blessed, right? He says, blessed are you for believing this because this has not been something that's come from you. This isn't your truth. This has been revealed to you by the Father in heaven. But he's not done blessing Peter. In verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, now, if, you, if you've heard this text or familiar with this text, um, the, the, the word controversy uh, may, may come to mind here. And, there, and, the, and if that's the case for you, there's probably one of two reasons or maybe both. Um, one is, uh, if, if you've ever heard uh, Rome, meaning Roman Catholicism, if you've ever heard uh, the Roman Catholic Church, like, and I don't mean like, you know, the, 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 the local cathedral down the street, I mean like the Roman Catholic Church, the, the, the magisterium where the Pope is the head of and all that. Um, you may know that this text is part of their justification for the Pope. And if you read that verse, you go, wait, 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 no, wait no, no, no. now which one was the justification for the Pope? I'd say that's exactly right. Uh, 18, this is the verse they use. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you go, hey, Chad, I didn't really hear a pope in there. I'd go, that's correct. You did not hear a pope in there. Where do you get a pope? Well, you, you get a pope from church tradition in the Roman Catholic Church. You, you get a pope about 400 years later. Um, Rome sort of establishes this papacy where, you know, the, the, the pope is the head of the church. And, um, and they read that interpretation back on this. So their rationale is, well, Peter was just the first rock upon whom the church is going to be built. There's going to be all these subsequent rocks that were coming, and that's just not, there's no biblical reason to think that's true at all. Um, and so I guess the motto there is if you can't read what you want out of the text, just read what you want into it instead, I guess is kind of the, uh, but I don't recommend that, right? We don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. Um, the second controversy is sort of related to it, but it's about the rock, um, who or what is the rock? Jesus says to Peter, he kind of employs this little play on words. He says, you are Peter. Um, the, word, the Greek word for Peter is Petros. So you are Petros, you are Peter. And on this rock, the Greek word for rock is Petra. So you are Petros, Peter. And on this Petra, rock, I'll build my church. So what is the rock? Well, grammatically, the text allows for two possibilities. The rock could be Peter, and the rock could be Peter's confession. Um, 
real quickly, I want to make my argument for C, all of the above. Okay, and here it is. Um, in what sense could we call Peter himself the rock upon which the church was built? Um, well, when did the church as we know it begin? We would say it was the day of Pentecost, right? I mean, that's when the, the, the Holy Spirit fell with these tongues that were like fire. Um, Peter is the one who gets up, preaches the sermon. All these people hear it in their own languages. Um, and 3,000 people are saved. And the church as we know it was formed. Um, and so I think it's fair to say there, there is at least the possibility that there's a sense in which Jesus was saying, hey, Peter, you're going to be the guy that preaches the sermon on the day that the church is built, on the day that I build my church. Um, what's the argument that Peter's confession uh, is the rock? Uh, I think this is obvious. It, it, so I, I'm, I'm, willing, I'm not willing to die on the hill that the rock includes Peter. I am willing to die on the hill that it includes Peter's confession. It may include Peter. It most certainly includes his confession. Um, the, the, the blessing the pour, the, that the Father poured out on Peter in revealing himself, who Jesus was, uh, was not just for Peter. Uh, Jesus was not just blessing Peter. He was building and blessing his church which would be comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the essence of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would become the foundational confession upon which the entire Christian church would be built. Um, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a whole lot of things you can get wrong. Uh, these are not some of those things. You must get that Jesus is the King, the Deliverer, and God. Um, and there's a promise to those who believe, right? He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I will admit to you, I do not understand the imagery here at all. Like, I, don't, I have no idea what sort of word picture Jesus is painting here. Uh, because it says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's all, I think of gates as being defensive, right? Like you, you, you close gates to play defense. But these sound like the gates are playing offense. There's this possibility that the gates themselves could prevail, like they're going out to war. I've never seen gates go out to war. I don't know how gates go out to war. No idea what's happening right there. But what I do think is crystal clear is he's making this beautiful promise to his people that no thing and no one will ever overthrow the church. It will never fail. And I think there can be this tendency to look at the culture and look at what's going on around us and, you know, and borrow that lingo, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Are we going to make it? Oh, no, and just kind of get in this panic. There is no need to panic uh, that, that the church is going to fail. It never has. It never will. It never will. God is faithful to his people, and he will keep his people to the end. In John 6, he says, of those whom the Father has given me, no one can snatch them out of my hand. They cannot be lost. They are his, and nothing will ever prevail over his church. Finally, um, in verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what are the keys and binding and loosing? The keys of the kingdom... That is a terrific question. What are those? There is no parallel passage for this. There's nowhere else really to go and look. Uh, just keys to the kingdom. You know, well, all right, is it a car? That's right. Come on. Um, 
But that whatever the keys are, I think we can kind of get some clues here. Whatever the keys are, you can tell they are connected to this idea of binding and loosing. Um, and so while, while the idea of the keys is not, there's no parallel text, there is a parallel text for binding and loosing. And so uh, in Matthew 18, uh, just a couple of chapters later, um, that, that, that text you probably know well, it's, it's the, uh, starting in verse 15, it's, uh, it's what to do if, if your brother sins against you. you know, and in short, um, you know, we're, we're told if your brother sins against you, uh, you go to him personally, right? Uh, now, the, you may think, well, the Proverbs talks about this being willing to overlook an offense, um, just kind of as, as an aside, if your brother or sister sins against you, we don't have the option to not bring that to their attention. There's a command. If your brother, right here in verse uh, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It doesn't say if your brother sins against you and you're not too intimidated by him or her to go talk to them or, in, or if you feel like it. Like if we love each other, and we want each other to be to reflect Christ, then when a brother sins against me, I go to him. When I sin against a brother, he must come to me. Now, the Proverbs talks about the wisdom of being, over, being willing to overlook an offense, and that is true as well. So every sin is an offense, but not every offense is a sin. There's ways that, you know, maybe... Maybe I took what you were saying and I was offended by it, but you didn't really mean it like that. And so I can kind of go, okay, you know what? If I'm being truthful, they probably didn't mean it that way. I felt offended, but I'm not going to go make a big deal out of it. I'm just going to overlook that. There's wisdom in that. Uh, but here we're told, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. So there's this one-on-one -on -one conversation. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the process here is, you know, you go individually. You don't want to, um, you know, you, you don't want to drag somebody's sin out in front of more people than you have to, right? I mean, so we, we're, we're hoping that we can just go talk to them personally and they'll go, hey, man, you know what? You're right. I'm so sorry. I should have done that. You know, please forgive me. And there, there's restoration and we can move on. If that doesn't happen, um, then, um, yeah, then the instruction is you, you take one or two other people with you and they participate in the conversation, almost like mediators of sorts. You know, they're they're kind of listening to both sides and they can kind of help make a little judgment here. And, um, and the goal again is peace, restoration. But in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Talk about an encouragement toward holiness, right? An encouragement to pursue Jesus. That is not where I want my sins to be, uh, you know, uh, spoken, right? I, I don't want this setting to be the one where Russell comes in and says, hey, uh, this guy did, you know, committed this sin and he's not repentant. Like, that's just terrifying, right? And that's part of the point of it. Um, if he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So treat that person as you would an unbeliever. Your, your, your involvement with that person from that point on is basically limited to gospel-type conversations. Hey, repent, believe, repent, believe. We're not chummy, we're not pals, we're not going to lunch together, we're not watching the game, hanging out, chilling. Um, those conversations are gospel-centered only. We're pleading with that person to repent. 
Um, And then he says there in verse 18 of Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's our parallel text for Matthew 16. We've got binding and loosing. Um, Now you'll notice in Matthew 16 that the keys and the responsibility to bind and loose are given to Peter. In Matthew 18, the keys are not mentioned, but the responsibility to bind and loose is given to the church. So what's up with that? The church is responsible to identify which matters of doctrine and practice should be forbidden and which should be permitted. That started with Peter at Pentecost and extended to the church as Peter's confession spread. Um, you know, obviously, there's a whole lot of room to believe things that are believe wrong things or get things wrong. But the implication for us for Matthew 16 is that the church should correct and seek to restore uh, those who deny foundational doctrine. If that person repents, the church permits him to continue as a church member. If the person refuses to repent, the church is responsible to revoke that person's church membership and treat him as an unbeliever. So what is this binding and loosing? It's it's church membership and church discipline. That's what's being talked about here. Um, And... um, um, when it comes to matters of practice, uh, the same is true. So we, we, we are calling one another into account as it relates to doctrine and practice. Matthew 16 focuses on the practice, or on the doctrine rather, what do you believe? Matthew 18 is focused on practice. Um, have you sinned against me? Have you committed some uh, sin against me personally? Uh, and the church is responsible to correct and to Seek to restore the person who has sinned. Um, If that person repents, the church permits him to continue as a church member. Uh, If the person refuses to repent, they revoke that person's church membership and treat him as an unbeliever. Um, And so this this idea of binding and loosing. um, And by the way, uh, the binding is actually... um, what you want. Uh, that, that's the good, th- so you're like binding and loosing. Well, which one's the good part? Is, is binding the good thing or is loosing the good thing? Um, uh, the, 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 um, the idea of, 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 of binding is uh, you, you're, you're essentially considering that person bound to Christ. Uh, they are in the faith. Uh, if, if they're loosed, uh, you, you're considering them to be sort of like on their own. They're, they're, they're outside the faith. And so this binding and loosing requires us to really know people and be known by people, right? So we have to, we have to know people so well that we know what they believe. Um, it, during the preparation, you know, I thought, you know, how many people do I know that I've had these conversations with where I say, hey, um, I just so we're on the same page here. We're in agreement that Jesus is the king that Jesus is the deliverer. He's our only hope for salvation. He's it. And he is God. Like, are, are we in agreement on that? Like, I thought, how often have I had a conversation? It was just to, like, to kind of like check in and go, hey, uh, just making sure we're on the same page here, right? Or how often has that happened to me? I mean, I can't say I've had a lot of conversations. People haven't approached me like that much. I certainly have not approached them like that much. I think it's kind of like, you know what? They're real nice and they've been members of the church for a while. I'm sure we're all on the same page, you know? Um, and that's just not a wise way to live. Like we need to know each other, know what each other believes. And we need to know how each other lives. 
Uh, we need to know and really be known within the local church. And so, if you're an introvert, okay, that may sound terrifying to you, uh, but be encouraged that you don't need to know and be known by every single person in the church, uh, but be challenged and encouraged to know and be known by some people in the church, okay? If you're an extrovert, uh, be reminded that you can't really know and be known by everybody. Uh, it just, it's not possible. Um, so pick some folks that you're going to decide, hey, I want to really know and be known by you. You still do your extrovert thing when you're in this group setting and like shake everybody's hand, that, that's me, I'm the extrovert. Um, but but sometimes the danger with the extrovert is that their, their, their relationships are a mile wide and about half an inch deep, right? They're, everybody's like, pal, they're, they're so likable, but nobody really knows them. It's an easy facade to hide behind. Um, if you're a doer, if you're hands-off, you're a worker bee, work hard at knowing and being known by the people you're serving alongside. Uh, if, if you're a spill-all, uh, and what I mean by that is if, if you're someone who... Uh, when someone says, how are you doing? They're signing up for about a 45-minute monologue. <laughs> Let me just tell you everything. <laughs> if you're the spill-all, take time to know instead of just being known. Like, make sure you're the kind of person that when you talk, people go, hey, man, I really feel like I know them and I really feel like they know me. Make sure you're that kind of a person. If you're a listener, if you're great at that, that's my wife. Um, Make sure you let some people know the real you. You know, so you, the, the, the danger for the listener is they can, they can be such a, 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 a receiver of information from people and they, they get to know other people, but nobody really gets to know them. Um, and if you are a sinner, make sure you let some folks know about the sin you've worked so hard to make sure no one knows about. Make sure you let them know that one. That, and I would say that is the sin that you must confess. That's the one you've got to get out because that's the one that will kill you. It really will. That is the one that is lethal to you. Um, and, and I've had some, uh, not nearly as many as I should, but I, I have had some conversations with friends that were just personally completely humiliating, completely humiliating. There, there are things that you go, I'm pretty sure you can't say out loud what I just confessed to these people that like I've thought or done or whatever, felt, whatever it is. Um, but there is a promise uh, to us that if, we, uh, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us, right? And who do we confess to? Well, we confess to God, obviously, but we also confess to man. James speaks of the wisdom of this. Uh, that if, if we confess our sins to one another, we will be healed, says James in chapter 5. And so uh, my encouragement is um, guard, as, as the members of 903, you guys guard each other well. Know, love, serve, and guard each other well. Uh, there are primary things that must be embraced about Christ. And so know Know what the people around you believe about these primary things. Is Jesus king? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus the deliverer? Can we all agree to that? Um, and, and ask these questions. Have these conversations. And then be in each other's lives. Observe. You know, I've got friends that know me so well at this point, they'll go, hey, man, you're hiding something, aren't you? And I go, dang it. I guess I am, you know. And so you know, we got to talk about it or whatever. But, but that's a blessing, right? Like, I, I don't... I don't want to get to the end of my life and have been a total joke, a, a, a fraud, a fake. 
I don't want to stand in front of Christ one day and him go, depart from me. I never knew you. I had no idea who you were. You use all this religious speak. You preach sermons. You did all this, and I never knew you. I, that terrifies me. I don't want to be like that. So my encouragement is let's not be like that. Let's be known. Let's guard each other practically, and let's guard each other doctrinally. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Uh, thank you for being patient uh, with sinners. Uh, Lord, we just get things wrong. I get things wrong. Um, and God, I'm so thankful for your mercy, your grace. Those things are brand new every morning when we wake up. And what an awesome thing that is. Lord, I pray that you help us to be good doctrinal guardians uh, of, of one another, that we'll take the responsibility to oversee one another's faith. And we'll be on guard against leaving that to the professionals, the, the, the pastors, the whoever it is. And we'll say, no, 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 as church members, I am responsible to help guard the faith of those who are around me, to keep watch over the practice, the way the people around me are living. Um, and I'm responsible to um, be, be part of, of setting these kind of boundaries or setting these um, bumpers to keep, you know, to keep those around me uh, pursuing Christ. And I'm responsible um, to seek for those around me, to create those kind of bumpers for me. And so, Lord, I, I pray there will be a ton of humility uh, here at 903 and at Sylvania where we are. I pray there's a ton of humility, that we're marked by that, uh, that, there's, that there's a ton of love, that there's, there's willingness to have difficult conversations, there's willingness to receive difficult truths uh, about ourselves, and that there will be a commitment to be walking in repentance um, both doctrinally and practically. So Lord, we love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.